And so, uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see everything the way you see everything. Help us to preach, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 from the message. God sits high above the round ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. I always feel uncomfortable around crowds. I mean it. I, I have this fear of enclosed spaces. I, 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 everything makes me... My father was, was basically a drone, like I've said. And, you know, the guy flew away when I was just a lava. And my job... Don't get me started on because I, it really annoys me. I'm, I, I was not cut out to be a worker. I'll tell you right now. I, I, I feel physically inadequate. I, I, my whole life, I've never, I've never been able to lift more than 10 times my own body weight. And, and when you get down to it, handling dirt is, you know, is not my idea of a rewarding career. It's this whole gung-ho superorganism thing that, that, that I... You know, I can't get. I try, but I don't. I don't get it. I mean, you know, I'm. Uh, what is it? I'm supposed to do everything for the colony, and and what about my needs? What about me? I mean, I gotta believe there's some place out there that's better than this. Otherwise, I would just curl up in a lava position and weep. The whole system makes me feel insignificant. Excellent. You've made a real breakthrough. I have. Yes, Z. You are insignificant. I am? <laughs> How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah, good. That's good. It's a good movie. The movie is called uh, Ants, and that's Z talking to his therapist. He's an ant searching for significance, but he's insignificant. His therapist reveals that he only becomes significant by adding himself to the whole. In other words, the colony is significant. That is, Z, it's, it's not about you. It's not about you. Therefore, Z's choice doesn't matter. Only the colony's choice matters. But we're Americans, right? I mean, we're, we're not ants. And so we're trained to say, hey, we're individuals and this is a democracy and every vote counts. And you think about it. The popular vote is simply the largest colony. So then the good is simply what most people do and thus we become slaves to fashion. Just one more person talks the same, dresses the same, acts the same, thinks the same as everybody else. We say, but hey, we're, we're Christians. We're not just Americans, and we're not just ants. And so we're trained to say, we're different. We follow the Lord. So we do follow him. We follow him kind of like this. Please, please, please listen. I've got one or two things to say. Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. 
work it out for yourself. Yes, we should all work it out for ourselves. Exactly. That's, that's Monty, uh, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, and that was Brian. It's a rather sacrilegious movie, but it's a rather insightful movie. The religious crowd has mistaken Brian for the Messiah. So he tells them, you don't need to follow anyone. And of course, that's not true. But he does tell them that they are all individuals, and that is true. You must think it out for yourselves. You're all individuals. And they respond in perfect unison, yes, we're all individuals. We must think it out for ourselves. And that sounds kind of familiar to me. Yes, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm different. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. As long as a large group of my friends also have a personal relationship with Jesus and can be different with me. As a kid, I didn't really fit in at school, but I fit in at church. My dad was the pastor, and I fit in because we could all be different together. And look down on the kids at school that were all, you know, just the same. In Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Myth of the Grand Inquisitor, in his novel The Brothers Karamazov, Jesus comes to Seville, Spain during the Spanish Inquisition. And the Grand Inquisitor, this old priest, locks Jesus in the dungeon and rails at him for 15 pages because he's destroying the work of the church. He screams at Christ, sitting in the silence, don't you get it? The great concern of these miserable creatures is not that every individual should find something to worship that he personally considers worthy of worship, but that they should find something which they can all worship in common. It is essential that it should be in common. There is nothing more alluring to man than freedom of conscience, but neither is there anything more agonizing Thus, the need to find someone to worship, someone who can relieve him of the burden of conscience, thus enabling him finally to unite in a harmonious anthill where there are no dissenting voices. The Grand Inquisitor rails at him for like 15 pages and then in the end, the Grand Inquisitor falls silent, longing for Christ to say something. Instead, in the words of Dostoevsky, Jesus suddenly goes over to the old priest and kisses him gently on his old bloodless lips and that is his only answer. You know, according to scripture, men, Adam, all of us, men aren't free. But Jesus came to make us free. And you see, I think the old priest is right. We don't want it. And so we abdicate our choice to the colony, to the popular vote, to the religious authorities. We abdicate our faith to them. We think truth, meaning, and significance is found in numbers. So what we worship in common becomes more important than what we worship. Psychological studies bear this out in some rather shocking ways. 
They reveal that most of us really are more concerned with being normal than being true. And therefore, I, I, I do. I, I want to be an, an individual. I want to be an individual, but only if I'm an individual just like everybody else. What if we only think we're individuals? Because society tells us we're individuals, but we're not. What if we only think that we have a personal relationship with Jesus because the church, our church tells us that we have a personal relationship with Jesus, but we don't? What if our faith isn't in Jesus, but the colony? The popular vote, the moral majority, the religious authority, the crowd. That chance, Hosanna, 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 and then crucify him, crucify him. What if? <laughs> well, it's just an interesting question. What if? I, I, what if? How would we know? How might we be cured? What, what if? Well, let's look at John chapter 9. We began preaching on it last week. John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the spit, the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So we went and washed and came back seeing. That's beautiful. But can you imagine how this guy felt? This is Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles or, or booze. And so there's hundreds of thousands of people. There's an immense crowd. And John is going to tell us that every day this man would sit in the midst of the crowd, blind and begging. In the midst of the crowd, blind and, and begging. Imagine that. So terribly alone in an immense crowd. Perhaps everyone is alone in a crowd. Because a crowd is just numbers. A crowd values uniformity and not individuality. So when you're in a crowd, you're surrounded by actors, all acting just the same. As Kierkegaard writes, a crowd in its very concept is the untruth. And so everyone in a crowd is alone. Yet few people in a crowd know that they're alone for, look around, it's a crowd, it's a crowd. <laughs> well, this fellow must have felt profoundly alone in that crowd. And yet, he's dependent on that crowd because the crowd is his livelihood, his life, right? He's alone in the crowd but dependent on the crowd and so he's resentful of the crowd. He's dehumanized by the crowd. A crowd finds its security and its significance in uniformity and, and numbers. 
This man is numbered among them, but he's not like them. He's blind. So they judge him and blame him and exclude him, even as they include him. So everybody sees him, but nobody sees him. Everybody knows about him, but nobody knows him. Can you imagine that, how he felt? Perhaps that's how you felt. Even at church, especially at church. Can you imagine how awful he felt? And now what does he need? What does this poor man need? Spit. And mud rubbed on his face. Jesus spits in the dust, makes mud or clay, and puts it in the blind, the blind guy's eye. And then he tells this poor blind man to walk to the crowd of Jerusalem with spit and mud on his face all the way to the pool cold scent. Why spit? Bible teachers have all kinds of theories, but, but they really don't know why spit. But maybe your heart knows because you know spit, right? 1975, Brendan Manning was a raging alcoholic lying in a, gutter in a gutter in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I remember him sharing this on our church retreat or somewhere where I was listening to him, uh, that uh, one day when he was lying there in a drunken stupor, this little kid ran up to him and pointed down at him and then suddenly his mom ran up from behind him, wrapped her hand around his back over his eyes and said, don't look at that filth, that's pure filth. And then she spat on him and walked away. That's humiliating. Mother Teresa wrote, we learn humility through accepting humiliations cheerfully. <laughs> what a drag. <laughs> humility comes through humiliation. But check this out. Once you are humble, you can't be humiliated. You're free. In Scripture, to be spit upon is the ultimate form of public derision. And in Scripture, no one is as spit upon as Jesus. The Bible points it out in several places. Old Testament, New Testament, he was, he was spit upon. And yet he humbled himself. He was free. Jesus was spit upon. And three times Jesus heals people with spit. Isn't that weird? I mean, that's just, that's just weird. Spit is humiliating. And spit is intimate. I mean, imagine this fellow. Everyone saw him and no one touched him. I mean, you've seen people like this, right? 16th Street Mall, downtown. I wonder if people like that are ever hugged or even touched by someone like you or somebody like me. And so he sits there in darkness, alone, in a crowd 
and he hears a voice. It's the light of the world. Instead of the condemnation he expects, he hears the teacher say, say to those that had despised him, this man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he hears the teacher bend down, spit, make clay. And then he feels that clay, that spit, in the spot of his deepest shame, his wound, his eyes. That's intimate. Humiliating, yet intimate. Like a sloppy wet kiss full of a child's saliva mixed with macaroni and cheese. <laughs> Had one of those? The Maasai tribe in East Africa has a tradition that is a sacrament. When a father seeks to forgive a son who has been excluded from the tribe because of disobedience, the father goes up on a hillside and there he asks the creator for the spittle of forgiveness. And if that spittle is granted, then he goes to a public place where he calls his son to himself and he anoints him with the spittle of forgiveness. And everyone begins to celebrate for this son that was lost has been found. The spittle of mercy has covered the wound of disobedience. Forgiveness is humiliating and intimate. It's grace, humiliating, intimate, and creative like spit. In high school, we called it swapping spit. It was sloppy wet kisses, and it was my favorite thing to do. <laughs> and it proved rather creative. It led to marriage and four children and a life. And now don't be offended at me, okay? I did not invent biology, God did. But this is the truth. Human life is the result of people exchanging body fluids. Amazing. In the beginning, God uh, bent down and made clay and breathed into the clay, making man, Adam. From earliest times, the church fathers spoke of what Jesus did here in John chapter nine as a picture of the creation of Adam. And Jesus is the breath, the word, the seed. So spit is humility, intimacy, creation, and here it's isolation. This is what's really confusing for us. The guy's already isolated and it seems like Jesus wants to isolate him even more. It's like Jesus goes out of his way to break every social taboo, every religious rule uh, that the crowd would ascribe to, at least in this situation he does. What he did was forbidden. It was forbidden on several accounts, not by the law of God, but by the religious uh, social rules of the day, the religious establishment. It was forbidden to make clay on the Sabbath, and this was the Sabbath. And it was forbidden to heal any ailment on the Sabbath that could be healed the following day. And it was even forbidden to anoint eyes with fasting spittle. Apparently, some of the ancients believed that things could be healed with the spittle of a person that had been fasting. And so the Jews 
saw that as some kind of magic, and so, of course, the rabbis forbid it. Even more, the Old Testament, Leviticus 15, reveals that contamination is spread through spit, and they were pretty sure that Jesus was contaminated with something. Well, you see, Jesus could have healed this guy however he wanted. And in this situation, he chose spit. Maybe he always chooses spit in some form. And so the law got the reason the light of the world spits. Wipes mud on this poor fellow's face, telling him to walk through the crowd and, and, and wash in the pool called scent. It's like Jesus is trying to make this fellow more of an outcast than he already is. And he'll receive his sight, but it will cost him whatever bit of reputation he has left. Well, the man does it. He sees, but he's like the only one that sees. He's like the only one that's sane, him and Jesus, and everyone else is insane. What happens next is like a Monty Python sketch. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again, uh, so they said again to, to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son. Yep, that's him. This is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. 
You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him. I need to read this like a Monty Python sketch to help me laugh. Because otherwise I think I'd cry. See, I've been the Pharisee and I think I've been the blind man that could see. I grew up in the church. And so I pretty much had God figured out. He worked through flannel graphs, properly organized Presbyterian committees, and the Westminster Confession of Faith. So hippie communes, Baptists, Pentecostals, Roman Catholics, and stuff like Holy Spit were just highly suspect. And yet whenever I judged some group or some means to be inferior, God would seem to use them to bless me and use them just to like tick me off. I've been the religious crowd. And I think I've been the, the blind man that could see, at least just a little bit. As a young man, I watched my father get excommunicated from the mainline Presbyterian church. It happened down at Central Pres where we used to meet. I still um, could not really explain it to you. It was like insane just insane. And as you know, about three years ago, I was excommunicated from the denomination my dad kind of helped get started, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and my home church. And people will ask me to explain it and at some point I always seem to stop and say, I'm sorry, I, I really don't know if I can explain it. It was like insane. I was asked to confess two things that I could not confess, that I never could have confessed in good conscience. And what made it feel insane was that so few seemed willing to dialogue or examine scripture in the light or listen to reason. And I found no one even willing to publicly confess what I was being asked to confess. And when I asked my colleagues at my home church, they'd say, well, 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 it's not that, it's something else. But they couldn't describe the something else. Some said, you're controlling, but uh, couldn't tell me what in fact I had controlled. Ironically, I was so terrified of coming across as controlling that I tried to control the situation by being totally not controlling, which gave a whole lot of control to other people that wanted control and manifested my real sin. And that is a desperation for everyone to like me all the time, especially the members of my tribe, my church, my family. For years, I had been the golden boy of my denomination, really had. But now I was backed into a corner and I had to choose my addiction to the glory of man or what I saw, the glory of God, grace. My tribe, my colony, my people, my family, 
or the truth. Or at least the truth in me. Honesty. And now this is the strangest part. It really is. Uh, The strangest part in this whole thing was that through circumstances, prophecy, and visions, I realized God had set me up. He set me up. It's like I was part of the crowd, yet alone in the crowd, dependent on the crowd, and so resentful of the crowd, and Jesus found me, spit in the dust, rubbed mud in my face, right in my wound, my sin, my addiction to approval, and then told me to walk right through the crowd and wash in the pool called scent. The crowd had given an insane diagnosis, and yet it was God's perfect prescription. Epa synagogos, excommunication. Epa synagogos, it's a, it's a word that only appears in the Gospel of John. It means kicked out of the synagogue, the assembly, Epa synagogos. It, it was just awful. And I'm sorry to say it was awful for many of you. Epa synagogos. Stripped naked, spit upon, and alone. You ever been there? Excommunicated by your people, your tribe, your family, your friends, your colony. And then you ask, God, God, what is wrong? And realize that he put the mud in your face. He led you to this place. And that doesn't mean that you're necessarily right. It's pretty much guaranteed that somewhere you're very wrong. Perhaps it's seeking the glory of men like me. Perhaps it's adultery or alcoholism or some other thing. But, but once you surrender to Jesus, you realize that he's led you. Even through your failures, he's led you to this place. Epasynagogos. Cast out, isolated, alone. Why? Why, Jesus? Why? Next verse. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe? in the Son of Man. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Do do you believe? Do, Do you believe? Not the scribes and the Pharisees. Not Rome, not the Peace USA, not the EPC, not your colony, your tribe, your synagogue. Do you believe? I want to know, Peter, not who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you believe I am? So anyway, this Adam, this man, was cast out. And that's where Jesus found him. Was Jesus ever cast out? Oh, yeah. Cast out, stripped naked, covered in spit, and nailed to a tree. And that's where we found him. 
Or I should say that's where he found us. Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. That's where we meet him. Remember Brennan Manning spit upon in the government, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, born a pre, or he'd been a priest and, and now he, he lay there alone in, in the ditch. In one of his books, he writes this, probably the moment in my life, my own life, when I was closest to the truth, who is Jesus Christ, was the experience of being a hopeless derelict in the gutter in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so you see, Jesus can ask him, who do you say that I am, Brennan? And he can answer, you're my savior who met me in the ditch, who met me at his cross. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees were blind to the truth because they sought the glory of the crowd. The crowd is indeed untruth, writes Kierkegaard. The crowd is insanity. It is people shaping each other in each other's image until all are just the same and all are just as lost, worshiping each other rather than the truth who is Jesus. And yet God loves the crowd. Or I should say he loves the people in the crowd. And so what does he do? Epa synagogos. John 16, 2, he says to his disciples, they will kick you out of the synagogues, the assembly. They will. It's God's plan. He, he isolates his disciples. He strips them of their addictions to the approval of men. And there he reveals his love uniquely in their wounds. He makes them individuals uniquely in his image and sends them back to the crowd. Not as a product of the crowd. Not as one more cog in the wheel. Not as one more worker in the colony. He sends them back as a blessing bearing a unique testimony to grace. See, God's not interested in simply building a bigger synagogue. It just doesn't interest him. God's not interested in just building a bigger assembly. He's building his church, ecclesia. It means people called out. And so he calls you out, makes you an individual, and then sends you back to make you his body, each part unique, but bound in one body, one flesh, one blood, not an assembly of one-celled organisms like a mold or a fungus, but a body with each part unique and individual and yet bound together in love. God does it over and over again in scripture. Joseph is rejected by his brothers so he can return and bless his brothers. Moses is rejected by Israel so that he can return and bless Israel. 
David is rejected by his kingdom so that he can go to a cave, sit alone in the dark, and write the Psalms and bless the entire world. Peter casts himself out in rejection, then returns to build the church. Paul is blinded, sent into the desert to return and bless the nations. From the ditch, God called Brennan Manning to return and bless the church and even our church. Even in the movie Ants, Z, the ant, becomes an outcast. And yet that makes him an individual. And then he returns and saves the colony. (laughs) In the end, he says, I got it all back, but only with this difference. I chose it. You see, God will find a way to isolate you from the crowd so that you're not one more uniform, mindless product of the crowd. He'll get you alone, so you'll choose him alone, choose love alone, and then return and choose to love the people in the crowd. This church needs you to be alone with God because we don't need one more worker. We don't need one more drone. We don't need one more Justin or one more Francis or one more Peter. We need you. And only Jesus knows who you are. And only he can tell you. For Jesus is rejected. So he can tell you. So he can bless you. And with you return and bless others. So I think um, if you are his disciple, God will get you alone to make you unique in order to bless the entire body. And God will get you alone to bless himself and to bless you with himself. Jesus will get you alone so that he can be alone with you. In high school, I was part of the crowd. We all dressed the same, talked the same, tried to act the same, and yet there was this one girl that always tried to get alone like a lion who isolates his prey from the herd. I always tried to get her alone so I could be alone with her and swap sloppy wet kisses, kisses that made me really who I am, made her who she is and created four children, created life. Well, Jesus anoints this blind man with mud and spit. He anoints him at the place of his wound and then he finds him and asks him, Do you believe? The man cries out, Lord, I believe, and worships. Worships. The verb in Greek is a cognate. means it's made up of really two other words. The word is proskuneo, translated worship. It comes from the word pros, or toward, and kuneo, which means kiss. I think the blind man just covered Jesus the Christ with sloppy wet kisses and Jesus ate them up like a lion consumes his prey. The disciples weren't kissing him. The scribes and the Pharisees were not kissing him. Certainly, Pilate and Herod and the kingdom of Rome, uh, they were not kissing him. But the blind man was kissing him. For the blind man saw him and knew him, knew him. Jesus, his savior. 
The kisses were the work of God displayed in him. Displayed in him, the work of God. So, so why the blindness, why the humiliation, why the isolation, why the spit and the mud applied to the wound? All for those kisses, those kisses. You know, we say, it's not about you. And yet, God makes it all about you. So that you would be all about him. And give him those kisses. Unique kisses, your kisses, your worship. In his book, Mortal Lessons, Richard Seltzer, MD, writes this. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private, alone, who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously, greedily? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. On the cross, our Lord's body was bent and twisted to show us that the kiss still works. Even more, it was bent and twisted in a particular way to show you that your kiss still works. On the cross, he bears your sin. On the cross, he kisses your particular wound with his grace. He covers your particular disobedience with a particular form of his mercy. And in this way, he makes you in his image and yet particular and unique in all creation. So do you feel cast out? Isolated? Alone? If so, let God kiss you in this place and you will be the envy of angels and you will be of ultimate significance to God and then to all of us.
for on the night that Jesus was delivered up, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so he's inviting you to come to his table and we invite you to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cups are wine, the light cups are juice and then take that uh, broken, bent, twisted body of Christ and place it upon your lips like a kiss. Believe the gospel and it will change you. The kiss will change you and bring you home. In Jesus' name, amen. And now repeat this. How you love me. Oh, how you love me. Say it. Oh, how you love me. Now you've been to the table of the Lord, so listen to the word of the Lord. He says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has a personal relationship with you. So have a personal relationship with him. And the next time that you are alone, We see it's probably not by accident. The next time that you are alone, be alone with him. And at the right time, at the right moment, perhaps he'll say something to you like he said to me. They cannot take away from you who I have made you to be. Now that you know who you are, I'm calling you to walk in freedom, to free people. I will show you, I will show you which way to go. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel for you and worship. Amen.